You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hello, everybody. I am your host, Christina Previtt. You are listening to Wake Up Call, and this is another edition of the Hashtag FemSquire series. I'm here today with Anna Marie Patella. She is a family law attorney and mediator in Red Bank, New Jersey. Thank you for joining me today, Anna Maria. My pleasure. So we've been trying to get this on the calendar for a while now. I've been really looking forward to it because I had sent you a media kit for my podcast. And it kind of had this arbitrary age range. Do you remember this? I do. That's why I responded to it. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, like, I don't want to out you and your age. Like, I know some people are, you know, sensitive about that. So, you know, hopefully I'm not. But I don't even remember what the age range was. But whatever it was, you were just outside of it. Right. And you wrote back, well, why not? You know, whatever, whatever age it was. And I didn't have an answer. I just was like, I don't know. I don't know why I cut off on that age, but I mean, I'm happy to talk to anybody, (laughs) you know, like if you're 99 and you want to come on the show, I'm happy to talk to you. So God willing, I'll be back. (laughs) Well, I would love to have you. I'm sure that you have a lot of good stories and there are more to come. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for calling me out on that. I really appreciate it because I'm always very aware of all the isms like racism, ageism, sexism. We're friends on Facebook. I just went on a rant in the past couple of days about how (laughs) I have a male business partner and I always feel like people direct their attention to him all the time because he's the male. Mm -hmm. So thanks. Thanks for Yeah, no problem. Yeah. And I wasn't really trying to out you. I was just trying to broaden your horizons. So I hope that's what happened. (laughs) You did. You did. And I just kind of realized it was just so arbitrary and just kind of get rid of it. So thank you for teaching me something. You know, I usually start out this interview with where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grow up? But I'm interested in where you grew up. Like, are you from New Jersey? I am from New Jersey. When I was very, very young, I was in the Bronx for a while. My parents were both doctors, and so they worked long hours, and we stayed with my grandmother when they were first starting out. Then we moved to New Jersey when I was about eight years old. That's where I've been since then. How did you not become a doctor? My mother's greatest disappointment that (laughs) I did not become her doctor. But you know what? They worked really, really hard. They didn't really have a lot of time to spend with family until much later. And I have three sisters, so they got the benefit of that. But I didn't. And I just thought it was a a hard life. Ironically, my daughter is a doctor now. So (laughs) my mother got her wish at least one generation later. So that's good. Yeah, but I I just thought I I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to be. I did try organic chemistry for a semester, first year of college, and I I knew then that that was not my field. So I started uh, really looking into more of a system that I thought I'd be helpful in. And I really didn't decide until last year of college that I was going to go to law school. What kind of doctors were your parents? My mom was a pediatrician and my dad was an anesthesiologist. 
It's funny to hear you say that you they had a hard job, you know, hard life as doctors, because I don't think divorce lawyers have it so easy either. Little did I know that at the time that I decided to be a lawyer, but I did start doing divorce work very shortly after. Well, actually, well, even while I was in law school, because I was working with the legal services clinic, but there was some genuine return that I was receiving by virtue of being able to help women, particularly, and families in general. So I've always done family law and um, it's hard to say you enjoy family law because of the downside of it in terms of the problems you have to solve and so forth. But if you hang in there <laughs> and uh, you can reach the outcome that seems best for the family, then it's definitely worthwhile. Were your parents really happy with the work that they did? Because I do find that if you really love what you do, even if it's long hours or it's, uh, it's you know stressful in some ways, it, that can help. Yeah, no, it? they both loved being doctors. They wouldn't have had it any other way. My mom actually wanted to be a doctor since she was in grammar school. She grew up in an era where women just didn't do those sorts of things, obviously. So yeah, she always valued being a doctor. She enjoyed being a doctor. We often said she enjoyed being a doctor more than she enjoyed being our mother, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's okay. <laughs> Sounds like you had a really strong female role model. Anybody who knew my mom would say that she was a very strong female model, <laughs> without, without a doubt. When you look back on that, do you think that that had a lot to do with how you became an attorney? And, you know, because obviously you're a strong woman yourself. Do you feel like that was a great influence for you? Absolutely. I mean, I didn't really think that women had obstacles as I was growing up. I was in law school before I realized that there were barriers for women. I just never experienced it, never thought I had to deal with it. And then I remember my friend and I um, in law school, still my dearest friend to this day, we went to a, a legal services clinic. They were looking for volunteers. And the third year student who was running the program looked around and uh, saw us. There were only 11 women in my class when I went to law school. So we did stand out for sure. And he said, oh, I'm so glad we have some ladies here because we really need some typing done. And the two of us looked at each other like, we don't know how to type. <laughs> we never took keyboarding in high school. So it was, that was the first time I was like, wow. <laughs> what did we say? We said we don't type. And, and we don't make cookies. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, Hillary Clinton got in big trouble when she said that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we had our moments too. But, uh, you know, that was the gist of it. I just really never experienced it up until then. So when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? It was more of what I knew I didn't want to be. I'm pretty sure I wasn't going to be a doctor, although I was going to test the waters on that, even, as I said, when I tried it in first year of college. I knew I didn't want to go to secretarial school because I didn't want to learn how to keyboard. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to be a teacher because I just didn't want to spend that much time with children, although I do love children, don't get me wrong. <laughs> so I just thought I wanted to do something where I could be in control of my life. I had a great political science teacher in college and he got us really interested and in, got me interested in case law. And I thought, well, you know, this might be it. So there I went. So where did you go to college? I went to Marymount College in Terrytown, New York. And um, when I went to Marymount, it was uh, coming on campus in skirts and gloves and heels, uh, curfews of seven o'clock on the weekdays, 
Sounds so absurd, doesn't it? And then weekends was 10 o'clock. Within six months with the Vietnam War atmosphere that was going on, we were wearing khakis and demonstrating and, you know, just the whole world was in upheaval and we benefited from it. So we really kind of just stepped forward into a new world quickly and it was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, looking back on that, that you got to experience those things, that's really cool. It is. And I mean, it was a terrible time, but it was a great time for women. What was it like? Well, we did, like I said, we did the demonstrating. I'll tell you a funny story. We had a sit-in at Marymount at the the auditorium uh, one Sunday, and um, it was in the newspapers on the front page of the New York Times. And um, I thought it was fabulous. I thought, who could who could be against this? Who wouldn't be in favor of this, right? So the custom was obviously every Sunday I would call home uh, because we didn't have cell phones, got you know those days. So I'd call home to touch base, see what where everybody was doing, etc. And um, I called my dad, answered the phone, and I said, "Oh, dad, how you doing?" He's like, "Oh, great. What did you do today?" And I said, "Well," uh, he says, "If you tell me that you went to that demonstration, I'm coming right up there tonight and taking you out of that school." And I said, "Dad, why would you possibly think that I would go to something like that?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man it always seems radical at the time right oh yeah especially to the previous generations because it's so absolutely them. i mean radical i guess it just means different because i'm there's so many other examples of it way before your time and after that For so sure. even things that are going on in the world now so it's interesting to see how the perspective changes over the years and i think it's one of those things that we have to keep returning to that there are things that we need to change in this world it's not a bad thing to change i think so many people are afraid of it they're always looking for the good old days you got to look at what are the good old days yeah i don't i don't even think that's a, such a thing you could ask 10 different people what what does that mean and i think they're all going to have a different perception of what that is but I, a debate that I've had often, it's just sort of a question. I don't even think there's an answer for it is, do we still need a women's movement? Is feminism still a thing? Because I think each subsequent generation sort of feels like, all right, maybe we're done now. You know, maybe there isn't anything to do. Like, it's not like back in the day when we couldn't own property or vote, we've come so far. Maybe we don't need that anymore. But then you start to see little examples of, yeah, there's still work to do. There's always going to be work to do, I think. What is your thought on that? No, no, I agree. I think um, the comfort of the good old days is defined by the person who's making that statement. And if their idea of the good old days is Ozzie and Harriet, mom comes home or is home all day and makes dinner in her pearls and apron, that's not such a good thing for people who don't want to do that, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the whole thing of uh, reproductive rights and so on and so forth, that's a pretty big deal. And it keeps resurfacing as a as an issue. So I think we have to be mindful of being too quiet sometimes of things that need to be addressed and spoken about. So who would you say were your role models? You know, who were the women or men that were the teachers, if you will, at that time that were maybe in the media or maybe they were professors of yours or maybe they were just people in your personal life? Like who were those people for you? That's a good question. Well, my mom, for sure. I mean, obviously she had a full career. She worked full time 
for my entire life, basically, until she retired. I had a couple of teachers in college that I really admired. My political science professor that I spoke about before, an English teacher that I had. You know, I, I think there's so many people in your life that touch you. Sometimes you don't even know until after the fact that you've had this experience with someone and you kind of recollect the things that are important about that person that you want to emulate. And there's a lot of people, you know, in this world. There's so many people that can offer you something. You just have to be aware of it and, and take it on. I mean, to this day, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, clients or other attorneys or other people that I meet to other organizations. There's just something about them that appeals. I was like, wow, you know, I could pick that up. I would like to be like that. Is there anybody that you could think of now where there was, you know, something maybe that they said, or maybe some living by example that you thought you wanted to emulate that? The one quote unquote famous person, if you want to say that, um, is Ruth Ginsburg. I think she is fabulous. I, I've always admired her. Um, she's a few years older than me, obviously, but uh, <laughs> still she grew up, she went to Rutgers University. So um, she taught there. So, you know, kind of heard about her and picked up on different things over the years. And of course, when she became a Supreme Court justice, how could you ignore that, right? <laughs> and the little tidbits that she says, and it's just, I don't know, just reveals so many things in terms of her, not only her personality, but her vision of the world. I have this little thing here that says, fight for the things you care about, right? So, I mean, you can take that in a good way and in a bad way, right? It's not something that means the same to every person, but I always think of her as meaning it in the good way, that you have to be aware of other people's needs. They have to be aware of their own needs and you have to take that step forward to reach out and try and grab them. You may not always be successful, but it's the effort that counts. So, you know, Ruth Ginsburg, I think is fabulous. I even have a jacket where her picture is painted on the back. So <laughs> that is very cool. Well, I think we all love RBG and we were all, everyone was just, we were besides ourselves when she passed. It was like, we still need you RBG. We still need women like her and, and they're out there, but I don't think there's ever going to be one like her again. No, she was picturesque. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think some of it was magical, too, because it was the time that she came up. You exactly. Know, it was like she was meant to be born when she was in the time that she was and what was going on in the world. And and her as her career just progressed, she just was always in the right place at the right time for herself and for all of us, too. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Who do you think she may have passed the torch to? Who's, who's uh, like her now? I can't think of anybody. I'm not sure I can help you with that either at this point. Maybe it could be you. Ah, uh, <laughs> aren't you the sweetest? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, she was obviously very public, but I don't think that everything we do that has an impact has to be so public. You know, I just think Absolutely. that women like us supporting each other, I think that makes a tremendous impact. Yes. In fact, I think that's our, our best that's putting our best foot forward is just being, being able to uh, do what's helpful to someone else and making 
you know, kind of leaving a mark in their lives. That's awesome. So you said that it wasn't until the end of college that you came to the decision that you wanted to go to law school. What were you thinking when you first went to college? Like, what was your major? I think I was just kind of developing into the person I am today. I have, um, I, I hope that I'm a person that has a lot of sort of different sides and views, and I'm not funneled into one particular arena. So I think the type of courses that I took just helped me develop into a person that wants to be working with people. And that's what I wound up doing. I really wanted to work with people. So I thought law school would be the opportunity to do that. I just focused on family law and that's where I've stayed. But how did that happen? Like, I always feel like I've, I've heard this saying, and I think it's kind of true is like family law, sometimes it picks you. Mm. you don't pick it. So was there, what exposure did you have to it? So when I graduated law school, I, um, uh, well, it was actually before I started graduate law school, I was working with legal services. And so I wound up um, staying with them. I wound up staying with them for about seven years. Um, I was their managing staff attorney for one of their uh, offices. And um, the, the one attorney who was doing family law left, and I basically got the family law cases. I mean, it's like anything else when you start that's new, right? It's challenging. You don't know what you're doing, but it got more comfortable more and more that I did it. And I just enjoyed meeting different people, um, trying to sort out what their problems were. And um, of course, back in those days, I, I did a lot more litigation and I thought that was, well, it was probably the only way to get things done. But even then I was really trying to negotiate more than I would litigate. And that's always been kind of a strength throughout my years is trying to find the solution rather than leaving it to somebody else to solve where nobody feels that they've got their needs met. There was no mediation back then. This was in the early 70s. Um, so it was you filed a complaint in court and that's where you went. Um, depending on who your adversary was, you may or may not have conversations and you were basically left to motions that were going to sort of steer the case from beginning to end or settlement conferences that a judge would basically lean one way or another to force a settlement but you know depending on who you were working with you had an opportunity to try and sit down and figure out what the issues were and possible solutions um, so the more that happened the more we were able to settle cases but it wasn't the starting point. Right now we're in a different era. We're looking for options before we get to court. That's really interesting to me because I've always wondered why a lot of attorneys don't just start out with the attitude of resolution, mediation, you know, coming to the table, trying to resolve the problems. But it sounds like there definitely was a time depending on who you talk to now, some people still do it this way. For sure. We all know, we, we won't say names, but there are certain people that have a reputation for that. And I always kind of wonder, you know, why isn't everybody just starting out that way? But it sounds like there was a time when it was just litigation. I, I guess that's where that, that image of, was it Kramer versus Kramer and War of the Roses, where sure. there's just these terrible drawn out divorces that are just destroy families. And that really, I think, is what the public perception is of divorce. Right. 
even though it doesn't really have to be that way. And I always wondered where that comes from. Well, that's where it came from because that was the only option back in the day. Um, I think it was few and far between where really people sat down and said, we have our differences. Let's try and figure out the best way to solve them and put it on paper. It just didn't start that way. In fact, I think back then it was perceived as a weakness if you started out that way. Very interesting. I think there's definitely still remnants of that around. Mm. Yeah, it's unfortunate because um, really it's a family, right? I mean, it's the most, it's the pillar of society, as they say, to use a cliche. And uh, it should be handled in a different manner. We're not talking about fighting a corporation. We're not talking about um, trying to deal with an awful event. Uh, you know, like a car accident or things like that. We're talking about a family that's going to continue to exist even after the divorce is granted. So do we want to shatter it? Do we want to, you know, send it spinning off into the universe? Or do we want to try and put it on a road where there can be some civility, especially if there's kids? You know, if you're never going to see your spouse again, that's one thing. But if you've got kids, you've got a whole bunch of things that you're going to have to deal with going forward, you know, the younger they are. I've always felt that a divorce was really a family in crisis. Absolutely. It really is. Looking back on things, when would you say that you really can see a shift in the, the paradigm of how family law cases were approached? It kind of started when mediation and early settlement panels came into being. So it was probably like the late 80s, something like that. And there was just, I think, a sort of an unspoken sense in the courthouse that it was just too overwhelming to handle all the litigation cases. And in desperation, they sought early settlement panelists and um, eventually mediation to solve the problem, to basically reduce the calendar, I think. I mean, judges have a hard job. Um, they do have to see this time in, day in, day out, hear the same stuff over and over again, uh, oftentimes deal with the same attorneys over and over again, I think I would shoot myself if I was in that position. Sometimes so. the same litigants over and over again, too. Exactly, exactly. So I can't imagine the frustration of all that. And I think if there were options, I think there are now, where people, families can find a different process and steer it, steer them away from um, an adversarial mode give them options to resolve their problems um, with issues with kids, you know, work with family therapists, work with um, uh, financial neutrals if there's money issues. Those are all things that I think people can uh, grasp and um, substitute for just an immediate, I'm going to court to show you that you're going to do what I want you to do. Well, I think that perception too, by the litigants is, is like from the media. It's, mm. they think that they're going to go to court and the judge is going to hear their story and just recognize what a jerk their spouse is. And that's somehow going to change things. Um, so I do feel like it's the attorney's role to educate them about what the Absolutely. process really is. Even though I know that's disappointing to them often, because how many times have you had a, had to tell a client, you know, infidelity isn't relevant. For sure. And that's hard for them really to grasp that because mm -hmm. it, they're emotionally attached to the situation. I mean, there's a sense of betrayal, right? If your partner has committed 
uh, adultery. I just had somebody the other day say to me, I was the wife that stayed home for 25 years and I cooked all the meals and I made sure that he was taken care of and he's fooling around with whoever it was. So yeah, of course, that's a deeply emotionally hurtful situation, no question about it. How could you not think revenge is the right answer? Uh, but it's not going to be the answer that makes a difference in the long run in the day-to-day -day life you have to have once you're divorced. Yeah. I, I actually had a personal friend who had been married for something like 30 years and she got alimony, but it wasn't enough really to maintain her at the lifestyle that she had grown accustomed, which is often the case that sometimes there's just not enough money to go around. And you know, I, I learned a lot from her as a young attorney at the time, because she told me that, you know, all the things that she did during the marriage, you know, taking care of the home, raising the children, supporting him and his business. And she just felt like at the end of it all, she just got X amount of dollars. And these words always come back to me. She felt like that's all I was worth. Mm -hmm. And I really got a, a different understanding of what litigants go through. I mean, oftentimes, as you know, it's the women that are receiving alimony after a long-term marriage. And I definitely saw it with different eyes at that point. I still don't think there's an adequate remedy in law for it mm -hmm. um, yeah. for different reasons, but it's kind of hard to be an attorney help, trying to help someone through a divorce when you know that there isn't really a way to make everyone whole at the end of it. That's true. Uh, there really isn't. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, when people get married, they oftentimes think about life insurance, right? Their biggest concern is if someone, one of them dies, how do they take care of their bills or take care of their kids and so on and so forth. But there's no divorce insurance, right? You don't sign up for divorce insurance. So if the marriage fails, the party, the other party uh, has the benefit of some financial security. So what do you do instead? I think people have to be aware that divorce is a reality. Um, there's not a lot of ex uh, exchange of resumes when people are courting, at least not that I've found, right? So you're on your best behavior, the whole glow of love is there or lust, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but um, the mundane life of marriage, which happens, right? It's a day-to-day -day event, uh, good days, bad days, et cetera, et cetera. And some people don't have the stamina or the um, attitude to continue in a marriage. doesn't matter what they promised in terms of you know, love, honor, and obey, or whatever, till life do us part. Um, so how do you protect yourself? And I think if you don't think of that as a real possibility, then you're always going to feel disappointed when something occurs. Well, funny, we were just talking before we started recording about expectations. And there you I, are. <laughs> I said in jest, if you have low expectations, you'll never be disappointed. But we kind of agreed that a lot of things in life are, we, we gauge whether it turned out well or not based upon what our expectation was. Sure. And who goes into a marriage not with that, with low expectations, right? 
generally people think their life is going to be better forever even yeah why would they do it right wouldn't make any right. sense. why would you do it exactly. well i find it hard to sell prenups i don't think as many people are doing them as should be yeah i don't know if it's prenups i agree with you though there's there, there should be more people doing prenups but i'm not so sure if it's prenups that's the issue i think it's um premarital planning i think where people don't look just at the first two or three years that they're going to be married, but what happens after the fifth year, the tenth year? You know, how are they going to raise their kids? Uh, if I stay home, put it out there. If I stay home, how am I going to be cared for if we divorce? Am I going to have money put aside for me on an annual basis so that I have retirement because I'm not working? Uh, do I get my own savings account? These are subjects that people don't like to talk about, but they're so important. Yeah. And I always feel like if you can't talk to your fiance about these things, you know, you don't want to hear this, but you might not be marrying the right person. You should be able to talk about these things. Exactly. Without a doubt. I mean, who takes on a job without finding out what their salary is going to be? Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. You ask about all the health benefits you're going to receive, the retirement benefits. Why is it, why are people afraid to have those to ask those questions and see what the answers are or work on the answers as part of their plan for the future. We all live longer nowadays, not good, thank God, but <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, if you're going to be in it for the long haul, then you've got to be prepared for that long haul. Yeah. I always say that I think the the good test for a relationship is not how well you get along and if you have all these things in common, but how you deal with conflict when it arises. Absolutely. And that's, again, something that people avoid because in the uh, courtship period, people are more likely to just, oh, it's one of those days. But what if those one of those days turns into weeks or months or forever? Yeah. <laughs> I remember my very first client was a 78-year-old woman. And I was shocked. I mean, I was only in my 20s at the time. And I thought, wow, how did that happen? So I was being polite and I didn't want to get too in depth with her. But um, finally I said, well, all right, I have to ask you this. I mean, you're 78. Why are you seeking a divorce now? And she said, because I can't bear the thought of dying with him. <laughs> and I thought, wow, <laughs> okay. That is funny. So, I mean, at least she did it, right? At least she... Yeah. Cause that's another thing people don't do in life often is pursue the things they really want. Interestingly enough, um, she also told me that uh, her, she was, like I said, 78 and her kids were fifties, forties, something along those lines. She had four children. They, um, all of them, all four of them said to her, we thought you should have left years ago. Mm, interesting. Well, that's sort of like a, a code that you're not supposed to tell people when yeah. you think they're marrying the wrong person or if they should get a divorce. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I have gone out on a limb at times and, and said, ex express those things. And sometimes it is not received well. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, you do get someone that will listen to you and, and confide in you about it. What do you think? Do you think that's sort of something you keep to yourself? Well, I guess it's always a risk. You're going to lose a friend, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> because they may choose that person over you. Um, but they may look back on it later and say, wow, I wish I'd listened. So it's hard to say. Um, I think you just have to tread very lightly on that and test the waters as to whether or not you can um, actually voice it so strongly or just be there when problems arise. So when you were about to graduate from law school, you had said that you were doing work for legal services. Did you work for them after law school? Was that your first job? As it turned out, it, it did turn out to be my first job. Um, well, you know, as I said, the Vietnam War going on and so forth, it was a big social justice area. So when I started working at legal services, I felt that I was doing something for people who couldn't do things for themselves. I did um, some welfare cases that, you know, was was good work in terms of being able to put it to the establishment, so to speak. <laughs> you know? uh, and um, so I stayed with legal services for about seven years. And then I uh, actually was going through a divorce. So I wound up opening my own office down in Ocean County. But I really enjoyed working with uh, legal services. Uh, they were great. I had my first daughter uh, while I was working for them. And um, I would bring her to work. And they would stick a, door, a sign on my door that said nursing mother. And uh, they wouldn't interrupt me. And this was, you know, this was not the norm back in those days. So it was a great bunch of people to work with. I had really fond memories of them. That sounds very progressive because even now there's still a big, people make a big whoop over nursing moms in public or at work. Right. Or It's amazing to me that we're even still talking about it. Again, see what we were saying before, how these things keep coming up. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. the more things change, the, the less they change. So you went right back to work after having a child and were, did you work continuously while you were raising your children? I did. Um, I actually, with my oldest, I, um, I did take a couple of months off, but then I went back full time and, uh, you know, as I said, I would take her with me, you know, as long as she wasn't moving around too much, it worked out fine. You know, when she started a little, got more ambulatory, that, that was, that was a killer. So it's like, okay, it's, um, daycare for you. <laughs> so we went that route. Uh, but my other two daughters, I went back to work within, um, well, actually my second daughter uh, was three weeks premature. So I had um, scheduled everything based on the fact of her due date, which for some reason I thought was going to be etched in stone. Uh, but she came three weeks early and I had a motion that was scheduled the week after I gave birth and um i couldn't get it adjourned and so i went to court that's really awesome i love that i wish you had pictures <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't think i was looking my best <laughs> to be honest with you <laughs> well you know rbg one of the things that she always said is that she credited her husband with giving her a lot of support in in terms of I don't want to say, I hate saying the word let, because that sounds like you need permission, but he was always supportive of her and her career and her, you know, throwing herself into that. And, and, um, have you read that? She's always been very uh -huh. concerned yeah, about yeah, yeah. that. And I always loved that because that was also very progressive, I think at the time. Well, even so now might be to some, 
So this this question could go very wrong if I don't get the answer I think I'm going to get. But I assume your husband also was <laughs> supportive. Of course. Well, um, my first husband, obviously not because I divorced him. But <laughs> my second husband is, of course, supportive. But, you know, I truly believe that there is some difference in how males and females look at the roles in the household. It's I think it's just a fact of life. I mean, if you're the nursing mom, well, right off the bat, you have to be primary, right? So um, they can be supportive. I, I get that. Uh, I'm not so sure it's the same role when you have children that they can step in if you're doing certain things like nursing and, and stuff like that. I mean, you can get bottles and all that, but you still got to pump. You know, it's just one of those realities. Uh, but I definitely think you have to be with someone who's supportive of your need to do certain things when you have to do them and either gives you space or helps. And it's a fine line. You know, they've got their lives too. My, my husband had a you know, pretty intense job um, and he was traveling a lot. So we had to manage. So you said that you you started your own firm pretty early in your career. Yeah. So when I left legal services, um, I moved down to Ocean County and um, I was going to, I was looking into working with the firm, but I had my, my daughter um, and I really didn't want to be required to work certain hours or certain days or whatever. I wanted more flexibility. So that's why I decided I was just going to open my own firm. And uh, I've always been a solo. Uh, mainly because I've always thought that one marriage is enough in my life <laughs> and I don't need a marriage with a, you know, a business partner. Um, and that's, um, I, I think it's worked out perfectly for me. I mean, I was able, I worked hard. I mean, there's no question. I, when she, my daughter, my young, oldest daughter was uh, <clears throat> young, um, put her to bed at eight o'clock and I'd work until one o'clock in the morning to get whatever I had to get done for the next day. Um, but by the same token, uh, it gave me the flexibility as she got older, when she was involved in activities, I could go out for an hour or two, uh, from the office and be present for her. Um, so I think, you know, you have to make your choices in terms of what your, um, needs are. And at the time, that's what I needed to do. I think right now there's a lot more flexibility with law firms for parents. And I think that's wonderful. I think that's a great thing to be able to see that, they understand that that should be the first priority and other things will work themselves through just because you have a happy parent. You probably don't give yourself enough credit for it, but that I think that was really ballsy of you to just go start your own firm as a young attorney because you hadn't been practicing law that long. How long had you been practicing by then? Was uh, 73 to 79. So that was, yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. not very long. Not I know attorneys long. now that are working for firms and have been practicing a lot longer than that. And their fear is always, oh, I don't know. I don't know where I would get the clients. I don't know how to run a business. You know, they they just think about all the things that they would have to do. And then they just get overwhelmed with it. And they feel like it's just easier to stay where they are. And that's okay. If that's for some people, if that's just what you want, you don't want to run a business, then you know, more power to you. But for the ones that would like to, a lot of them don't leave because of fear. And it doesn't even sound like that ever occurred to you. 
in retrospect, I'm not so sure why I wasn't more fearful, but <laughs> I actually renovated part of my house. Uh, I renovated the garage into an office. So I had a secretarial space, a small reception area, and then my office in the, on the first floor. I stuck a sign on my lawn and uh, I don't know, the phone rang. I, <laughs> I have no idea, but if the phone rang and I started getting clients. I mean, I joined a lot of groups. I was active in the Bar Association. So I certainly got to know people. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you, for you and for all the people that you've helped. Can you tell me when did things kind of start to shift towards mediation and attorneys being more resolution minded? Because obviously you've built a, a nice mediation practice. Yeah. So I had a client that her divorce spanned 20 years. That's crazy. That's definitely the longest one I've ever heard of. Well, when I first met her, her children were little and it went on until they were in college. So the actual divorce didn't happen? Well, I, you know, the marriage ended by the divorce probably in the 11th year of marriage, right? But they had had problems from the, the beginning. I mean, there was just one thing after another. I knew her personally, so it was kind of like I was involved in her divorce. But as far as being a client, when the divorce took place, it was motion after motion after motion after motion after motion until the kids, the two boys were in college. And it was horrific, absolutely horrific. It was to, a, well, we talked before about judges getting tired of seeing the same people again. Well, that was, that was this case. And I just could not believe that two attorneys couldn't find a resolution here. It just astounded me. It didn't seem to me that difficult to find answers if everybody was on the same page to do what's necessary to move it along. And that just never happened. And was this a divorce that you were handling? Mm -hmm. yeah. Were you as a, one of the litigators? Yes. So what, I mean, looking back on it, what do you think was the problem? It, it, was it just the system? Was it the parties? No, well, it was it was a little bit of both the system because you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't geared to have people resolve things. It was geared to be available to make decisions for couples. The other attorney was very difficult. My client was difficult. I'm not going to say she wasn't, and um, her husband was very difficult. So it was every little thing was monumental. Every little thing, but I was I got just got tired of it. You know, and I started looking into mediation and I took the uh, training course. I took an apprenticeship course. I got involved with early settlement panel. I was one of the liaisons in Ocean County between the bar and um, the uh, court system to get that up and rolling. So it just naturally came to be that I was moving away from the litigation arena. And then I took um, a collaborative law training course in 2004 or five, I forget when it was. And since then, I've decided that I'm just not going to handle litigated cases anymore. It's not good for me. I don't think in the long run, it's good for families. There aren't cases that have to go to litigation because I know there are, but I don't think the majority of them have to start in court. I think you can spend the time and the effort if two attorneys work on a file to have it all resolved and then just present the package to the judge and it's done. 
I agree with you 100%. Sometimes I think, and I might get killed for saying this, that sometimes it's, it's the attorneys who kind of drive the litigation. I think most attorneys don't do that, but I think there are some that do. But I think there are more attorneys that are resolution minded. And hopefully, I mean, don't you, if you do get a case where that's litigated, don't you always think, oh God, who is the adversary? Because once you know who the adversary is, you have a pretty good idea what the tone of the divorce will be. Sure, absolutely. In fact, when I have clients come in who um, are looking for representation and they tell me who their spouse's attorney is, I can tell them right away whether or not I even want to be involved in the case. I know I'm not going to litigate for them, but I also know that they're probably not going to be in a position where I'm going to negotiate on a good faith basis with that person. And I don't want to expose my client to being threatened with litigation because that's what their agenda really is. So you have to know who you're going to be working with to make it a successful process for both people. And it's always interesting to me when I hear people say that they want a pit bull or a shark attorney. Yeah. And my response is always, you really don't want that because to me, a pit bull or a shark is someone who's just very litigious. And I don't really don't think that most people need that in a divorce. If, you know, both people can come to the table, I don't mean they love each other and they're holding hands because that's also another misconception is that mediation will never work. How many times have you heard that? Um, it can still work even for cases where there's a lot of conflict. It can still work. It works all the time, especially if you have a skilled mediator. But I think what people don't understand is a shark is really kind of like a one trick pony, you know, that they go to court. That's what they do. They file motions. They fight. That's just what they do. And that's expensive. So if you don't want to pay, you don't want a pit bull or a shark because that's always going to cost you a lot. Right. And they send nasty letters, which just keeps raising the temperature of the parties and the, and the whole case. So your emotions are always on high and the bills reflect it because you don't want to be the person that doesn't respond to that nasty email because then the assumption is that you're agreeing to what they said and nobody wants that sense so you know just a it's round and round circle all the time um yeah i, I think you hear all the time uh, as attorneys we hear uh, complaints that we know a particular attorney is not going to settle a case until their retainer is is complete done liquefied, extinguished, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, it may be true. It may not be true, but that's the perception when in the reality of it, most cases are going to settle. I think that's true about the retainer for some people. It's such a pleasure when you're working with, and I don't call them adversaries. I call them colleagues. When you work with a colleague who's going to really focus on finding solutions for this family. It's such a heightened experience than the sort of protect yourself because I could get barbed at any time feeling that you would get with adversaries um, that you never want to go back to it. It just doesn't make sense. And your clients feel the same thing. I think it's kind of admirable that you work with people who can make both parties feel comfortable. I totally agree with you. I mean, even though, like I said earlier, it's a divorce and it's technically in court, it's in family court, it's, you know, an intimate matter that mm -hmm. 
that we're helping somebody with, you know, it's sensitive. It's not like, I don't know, you know, arguing over a speeding ticket or, exactly. you know, something like that. So given where you are in your practice today, do you see anything that's trending? Like, where do you think we're going with family practice? The thing that I find interesting and somewhat ironic is uh, when I started doing a collaborative practice, a few attorneys always said, that's ridiculous. You can't get people to do that. It's too kumbaya. People aren't going to be honest. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Just anything negative that could possibly come up. Now I hear the word collaborate being bandied about by everybody. <laughs> so yeah. it's all over the world. And uh, I say to myself, now, how did that happen? <laughs> you know? So people that I've trained with, they seem to uh, want to call that a collaborate with a small C because we assume when we say collaborate is with a capital C based on an actual process where the attorneys and the couple are committed to this process. But it gets a little confusing, gets a little confusing for people when they're looking for processes as, as to what exactly am I getting? Well, that's interesting you say that. Um, first of all, because I always sort of laughed that there had to be this collaborative methodology because the only reason it even has to be a thing is because the traditional course isn't working that way, even mm. when it should. So you shouldn't have to have this other thing that you call collaborative law because everyone should really be doing that anyway. So that's kind of sad, but at least there is something there for the people that do want to commit to doing it that way. But I also think that it's our role as attorneys to educate the public about what they're really doing in a divorce because so many people they don't know how to start i think they just kind of know okay i guess i have to go talk to a lawyer and so right there they see it as a legal process mm -hmm. and then depending on whoever they call that's going to be the person that introduces them to divorce and what are mm -hmm. they telling them are they telling them all about litigation or are they steering them in the direction of resolution and mediation and, you know, compromise and, and solutions? So I hope that people like you get out there more, which you will with this podcast and, you know, whatever else you're doing out and about in the community so that we can all get the word out to the public that divorce doesn't have to be the way it was, I don't know, in the seventies or before that, when everything was just litigation and there, you know, there weren't, um, you know, a lot of mechanisms for people to do it in a more peaceful, dare I say, respectful and kind way. And I do think it can change. I think you're absolutely right. The reason that um, all div divorces were litigated back in the day is because uh, there were fault grounds. It was either extreme cruelty or adultery or habitual drunkenness or imprisonment and et cetera, et cetera. Now everybody's divorce is based on irreconcilable differences, which is basically just realizing that people just can't get along to the level that they need to get along for a marriage. So the standard is so much different than it was back then where you had to prove that someone committed some offense to entitle you to get a divorce. Now it's really a decision to get a divorce. It may not necessarily be each party on the same level of acceptance, but it's, it's a given. 
If you want a divorce, you can get a divorce, whether your spouse agrees or not. The only thing that you have a choice is what process do you use? So you, do you go back to litigation where you had to prove a cause, which doesn't exist anymore? Or do you pick a process like mediation or a collaborative process where you recognize I'm actually making a choice as to the process I'm going to use for the divorce that we're going to have. Not because I want it, but because it's going to happen. And that's really the difference. I've always thought that maybe that law firms should just all start having a therapist on staff. Agreed. Why Agreed. don't we do that? Let's turn that into a thing. Well, we do in collaborative process. We always have a divorce coach who's involved. I mean, that's that's it. Uh, it's it's a mistake to start a, a case without having some person involved who can understand family systems and where these people are based on their emotions. And I think people have to be kinder to themselves too. I mean, you you're going to go through a whole range of emotions getting a divorce whether you're the one who initiated it or not. And mm -hmm. I, I do think they both experience it differently cuz you I'm sure you'll agree that the one that initiates is a little further along. Mm -hmm. the one who didn't, they kind of need a little time to catch up, but they all eventually get to the place they need to be where they acknowledge and accept that the divorce is happening and, you know, there's that there's nothing that they can do about it. So how long have you just had a primarily mediation practice and, and you do collaborative law as well? I haven't done a litigated case in at least 10 years. Was that a conscious decision that I do not want to do litigation anymore? Absolutely. Because when I first started doing um, mediation, I was doing some litigated cases. Uh, I was reducing it, but sort of, sort of almost unconsciously at that point. And then when I took um, started to do a collaborative process, um, I couldn't do litigation because we schedule sessions to the convenience of the parties, not to the convenience of the court. So I had to be more available. And it just naturally came to be that, why would I even want to think about taking a litigated case where I have to spend time churning the wheels, so to speak, where we can have sessions where people are in the process for the purpose of resolving things and moving it along. So. It didn't make sense. Do most of your clients that come in for mediation, do they have attorneys that attend as well or do they come alone? Not always. Um, I always suggest that they should have attorneys because I think it's important for them to have as much information as possible. Um, I don't want them going down a path thinking that there's something that they haven't learned about that makes a difference in what they might propose or counter-propose. So I always encourage it. Not everybody does listen, but before I complete the mediation, I always pressure them, so to speak, uh, to have someone look at it. So again, that they don't have, I just tell them, look, do you want to wake up in the, in the middle of the night, six months from now saying, wish I'd known something else, or someone tells me something and I don't know if it's true or not, just go do it. It's not a big deal. Just do it. But then are you afraid? I mean, and I think you're right. You know, we have to encourage them to do that because do you draft the agreement? <clears throat> no, I just draft an MOU. Okay. I don't think I should change hats. I think if I'm supposed to be the neutral mediator, then I shouldn't be preparing a legal document that they're going to sign. 
So then they have to go somewhere else anyway to have someone draft a settlement agreement if exactly. they choose to do it that way. Right. I, I've just seen too many examples where you, it looks like they're done. You know, we as attorneys, we can look at the agreement and we can generally tell if it's about where, it, if it landed about where it should have, or if right. it's really lopsided. So it's, you know, for the ones where it's really lopsided, I, you know, I think we encourage, we strongly encourage them even more to go see uh, another attorney, but for the ones where it's kind of, you know, it kind of landed where it should, I don't worry as much about them, but I, sometimes I do have concerns that who are they going to go to? Are they going to go to somebody that, you know, has a really rigid idea of, what winning or losing looks like, and it's just going to blow it out of the water, and it's going to end up being litigation. Yeah, I mean, I can usually tell when they, if they tell me who their attorney is, I know if it's going to fall apart or not, or at least fall apart for a while. Um, it might pull it together at some point, but I also suggest them, you know, at any point, you can have your attorneys come into mediation. There's no problem with that. Let's get it all on the table. Let's see what their differences are. And let's see how we can reconcile those differences. That's the reason they're there in the first place. So um, I'm not concerned about attorneys blowing it apart um, unless the parties decide to litigate at that point. Then I have a concern. But if they're willing to come back and sort out whatever the issue is, then it's fine. So how did you transition your practice? Did you just just start marketing more towards mediation and just stop accepting new litigation clients. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that yeah. looked like. Yeah. So I did changes. Uh, I made changes to my website. I concentrated on mediation and collaborative practice. Um, I made, I talk about the differences between the three processes. So I include litigation, but um, if someone comes to me, um, well, not so much now because most people know I don't litigate. So uh, the people that generally call me aren't calling for mediation or collaborative practice. But earlier on, I would uh, tell them, I mean, I'm happy to give you a consultation. I'll talk to you about different processes. You can decide, you know, what's best for you. And if you decide you want to go into litigation, I'm, I'm not going to be your litigator. Um, I've had some situations where people have still wanted to try and negotiate an agreement. And I'll I'll take it on for limited representation, but I have a really, you know, strong retainer agreement says that if, you know, you decide to litigate or the other attorney decides to litigate, I'm withdrawing. Even if the other at my colleague is a good guy or good per woman, I am not going to take a case that has any chance of going to litigation. I'm just not going to do it. Well, I really admire you because that's been something that I've wanted to do for a while now. And when I would talk about it with other practitioners, they would, a lot of them would say, oh, you know, it'd be great, but you just can't have a practice with mediation only. You know, you just, it's not sustainable. And like all the reasons why you can't do it. Right. But here you are. You can do it. I can tell you, you can do it. You're my idol. You're my role Aww, model. You're so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like you too. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'll take it. I appreciate no, it. It's been really fun. It's really been fun to talk to you. So you're supposed to come up at some point to visit my office. So do that and we'll have lunch. I would love to do that. So I like to have fun doing a Proust questionnaire. Have you ever done that or heard of that? Not sure. What is it? So I'll admit, I totally stole it from the back of Vanity Fair magazine. If you pick up a <laughs> Vanity Fair magazine, they always have one in the very back 
inside cover, uh-huh. some celebrity or notable person, and they just ask them a series of questions. They're short, okay. very short, uh, you know, intended to have short answers. And it's originally it was something that was supposed to reveal something about your character, uh-huh. but they're fun. So I'll ask you a few. Okay. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Perfect happiness. Well, I'm pretty happy right now, to be honest with you. Um, I like what I do. I love what I do. I shouldn't even say I like. I love what I do. Uh, my kids are great. Um, my husband is gives me as much space as I need, which is fabulous. <laughs> um, the only thing that I would like to do more of is travel. But unfortunately, you know, we've been prevented from doing that recently. So um, then I guess I will be perfectly happy. <laughs> Everyone always says that about travel. That's that's my answer too. Where where's like your top, you know, one or two places that are on your bucket list that you have to see? Well, I haven't been to Portugal, so I want to go to Portugal. Well, good. I you should definitely do that. I haven't been to Portugal either, and that's on my list. But I will follow up with you and ask you if you have booked it. Okay. All right. No problem. <laughs> okay. What is your greatest fear? I guess maybe that I won't be able to do everything that I want to do. Okay. So what is your greatest extravagance? Broadway shows. Oh, have you been to one in a while? I just went to one this past weekend. My first in many, many months. Uh, I went to see six. It's, it was great. Oh, nice. Good for yeah. you. Thanks. What is your biggest regret? My biggest regret that I wasn't taller. <laughs> oh, how tall are you? I'm uh, like just about five feet and maybe not quite. <laughs> oh, well, I'm five seven. I always wanted to be five ten, but I'm glad that I'm not five ten because uh-huh. really well, I'll never see that. So <laughs> you can wear heels though. You can wear heels. Yeah, you know, since the since COVID, I have much been much more into comfortable shoes. So I'm not sure I'm ready to go back to heels again. Me too. And then I went out and I wanted to get dressed up again and I put heels on and I felt so awkward in them. Right. I haven't worn them in so long. Not comfortable. They're not comfortable. No. So I don't know. I might have to retrain myself to wear the heels or I don't know, maybe give up on the heels. I don't know. (laughs) If you give up on heels, have you given up on life? I don't know. Uh, No, no, I can assure (laughs) you that's not true. (laughs) Are there any books that you've read that fiction or nonfiction that you feel like were really influential for you or made an impact on you? Mm, I really can't say that. I really, I, I read for enjoyment. I uh, rarely pick a book because I think it's going to be a life lesson for me. I consider that work <laughs> uh, because I'll do a lot of reading for collaborative practice or mediation. Um, so, you know, I, I try and find books on children and parenting time and so forth. So I, I think if I'm going for anything that's enjoyable, then I just steer away from that sort of stuff. I've never been into a lot of biograph biographical novels, pick them up once in a while. Sometimes I'm so disappointed. I thought, you know what, this is like reading a history book and I really don't want to, didn't want to do that. So I can't say there's any book that I can say was influential. Um, I do enjoy reading. I belong to a book club. It's, it's always amazing to me sometimes how some of the books could be so good and some of the books could be so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I will just go around the bookstore and I'm one of those people. I'll just open up the first page. And if it doesn't grab me immediately, I just put it back. I, I exactly. I don't can't tell you what would grab me and what wouldn't. But I read The Sweetness of Water recently. That's a really good book. Okay. I like that a lot. Well, I will check those out. Thank you for the recommendations. Yeah, no problem. And thank you so much for giving me your time and sharing your stories with me. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. This was a real pleasant way to spend a, some time on a work day. So I love it. <laughs> oh, good. Well, thank you. I'm glad. And um, for people listening, you can find Anna Maria at patellalaw.com. If you were interested in speaking to her more, finding out about her services, I will have links to that in the show notes. And uh, we'll see you again, Anna Maria. I'd love to find some other project to work on with you. Excellent. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.